Hello, it's Vanessa Maria here and I'm welcoming you back to another special edition of the RA Exchange in collaboration with Black Minds Matter. Today we are joined by Michael Riley, a founding member of the British Roots reggae band Steel Pulse, who would go on to receive a Grammy. Over the years, he has performed, produced, managed and consulted on many successful artists and their projects. As a professional writer and producer, Michael's work has encompassed TV, film and theatre, resulting in over 11 UK top 20 positions and three UK number ones. He also formed the Reggae Philharmonic Orchestra, Britain's first black pop orchestra, and composed extensively for television, including BBC One and Two, ITV One, Two, Three and Sky. Currently, Michael is a senior lecturer, director for the Black Music Research Unit and principal investigator for the Bass Culture Project. Michael, how are you doing today? Um, I'm okay. It's Tuesday. It's only the second day in the week. Um, and <clears throat> I've yet to bump into a student, so I'm good. <laughs> what made you smile today? Uh, the sun. The sun. And... Do you know what? We're halfway down October. So this is what we call an Indian summer. And it means it's unusually warm, unusually bright. That snow, that dull, misty morning uh, haze that normally greets us in October is not here. But it also means the planet's bloody dying. So, <laughs> hey, you just got to balance those two things. Ups, ups and downs. I think that's pretty much similar to a lot of people's journeys in music. And I know that you've had several roles in the music industry from being um, a member of a band called Steel Pulse, a producer, a manager and a consultant. And you started out in a band that was formed in Birmingham. What was the music industry like when you entered it? Um, well, well, firstly, just to... Um explain uh, my background. My, my first band is Roots Reggae Band, um, and that is late 70s. And so that means this is the point in music history in the UK where you have punk, um, you've got the first British reggae bands as opposed to Jamaican reggae bands, and we were one of those, and you've got overt racism. When I say overt, it means that it's on the streets, uh, uh, it's violent, it's people coming up to you uh, and wanting to kick the shit out of you. The police are part of this. Actually, it sounds very much like today in certain parts of London, but this is the 70s. And so I think Jamaican music or Jamaican popular music is the main music, uh, black music on the street, apart from US R&B and soul. But we got this juxtaposed with punk, which is a rebellion, if you like, from white British youth saying, we're fed up of old rock stars. We're going to do something for ourselves and we're going to challenge the system. And then in the middle of that, you have this overlap where you've got um, punk and reggae coming together. Um, it's also the period in which we have the first black British genre arriving, which is Lover's Rock. So it's in, in terms of uh, an exciting period, it's really exciting because we've got the best of Jamaican music challenging the best of American music. And then we've got our own stuff that we've started in the UK. And we have um, 
are first, I think. Mm. Um, number one, uh, Janet Kay, City Games. This is all the same period. So it's like we've arrived as Black British-born individuals uh, through music. So a really important period. Mm. And you mentioned that it was, it was similar to almost like today when you were speaking um, about your experiences in the, in the 70s. What are some of the like, crossovers or comparisons that you can notice in the scene or the music space today and while you were an artist? I think key moments are being on radio. So now it's still important to be on radio for Black British artists. But alongside that, um, performing to large audiences, uh, being on a big stage. And so in the 70s, to get onto a big stage uh, where you got more than a few hundred people was a big deal. And back then, um, I think our biggest, we had two major performances. One, because we toured with Bob Marley. So one, we, we did the first European tour and it was just the size of his audiences and it, we actually were uh, did the European tour so we left the UK so leaving the UK to perform then and now is a big deal for artists. Um, we also did Rock Against Racism which was a major I think the closest we come to that would be um, the Black Lives Matter march. Um, we had about just over 80,000 people we're performing in front of and representing kind of black music and black community in front of that audience. That chimes with today, if you like, and perhaps performing in front of a Glastonbury audience. Um, but then it was a, in a way a bigger deal because, or as important because those opportunities were so far, few and far between. And it also meant that you had an opportunity to make a video. And back then again, that was a massive deal to make a video. Now, anyone's rock up with their iPhone practically and just make a video and put it on YouTube. But then it was a big deal. And you make those comparisons and you look at the outcomes of that. And because that type of exposure four decades ago um, was so rare, you still have an audience today. Today, it's so normal, it means less to the audience, which means how long it resonates is debatable today because everyone's doing it. Back then it was so rare that you have people that still remember that event four decades later um, and will turn up to something. So, you know, it's, it's compar comparable, but it's, it's very different at the same time. Also, I think one of the things that I thought of was like social media as well, because everyone is documenting from every different angle and there's like a hundred videos from one event, whereas before maybe someone took a picture and that, that was like the moment. Yeah, it was a moment for everyone, you know, not just for the individual. Back then, that was a moment for everyone. And if you weren't there, everyone spoke about not being there. <laughs> you just send the event to whoever you want and you, you broadcast it globally so it's it's that is a major difference I think also when you speak it reminds me a lot of how like music um music and politics and identity that like, intersect and I wanted to ask you how um while you were making music 
um, how your identity and how politics like were um, related to that process? Well, again, jumping back to some of my students call it the dark ages. Um, anything post 2000 is like ancient history. Anyway, um, the difference then and, and comparing it to now is arguably not that much. We spoke about our existence, our challenges, black, young males, our fight with the state, our fight with the police, our fight with education. And what was popular then was to talk about the politics of the day. That was not frowned on. In fact, to do that kind of loved up music, you were, not you were considered not serious. And the audience bought into that. Um, they were looking to the musicians to uh, provide links uh, to the wider diaspora as well. Um, and you were held on a pedestal for that. Today, it's slightly different. You can just sing about whatever shit you want, really, and you'll have an audience. So I think politically it's, it's shifted, and a few artists that uh, are focusing on a, uh, a positive, if you like, serious intellectual narrative are beginning to pick up uh, uh, numbers in terms of an audience. Now, that is changing. I think we're looking or young people are now looking for that type of uh, artist that is politically aware, politically informed, not overbearing, but a little bit more serious. Um, and also artists that are plugging into their history, their heritage, and looking at how, uh, where they are now is, is linked to where they were coming from. And um, talking about that, Again, not preaching, just talking about it. And I think there's an audience that is now looking for that type of uh, content from artists. I think there's a global audience that are saying, young people, millennials uh, onwards, that are saying, we're not responsible for this. It's you elders that did this to us. And, you know, you need to be accountable. So I think that's, again, Similar to where we were back then, it's like we've lost about two and a half decades or so. Um, but we're getting back there because the world, arguably, is not getting any better. I also think now with like Gen Z, there is so much access to information on different platforms and um, you have social media, the internet, you can research um, around topics that are coming up or are current. I wondered like where you were sourcing um, like your information from all, like how, how were you discussing and um, talking to your peers about the politics that you were, um, that you were basically making music around? Cause I know it's so different for young people today. Maybe we see a TikTok and we're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is what's happening in Ukraine um, or whatever it is. I'm guessing it's completely different. <laughs> It, it, it was different. I mean, again, to, to do a then and now, I think then you looked for specific figures. Yeah. Um, and being a young person, you looked to uh, young writers that were less and mostly came out of America. 
So um, we were very influenced by Black America back then. Uh, a little bit from Africa, but mainly African American, mm-hmm. and a few individuals from the Caribbean. But mostly, even then, we looked at the artists. Mm-hmm. We looked at the artists to give us that information, and the artists were doing research in their own way, and and sharing that research through lyrics. Um, the challenge now is that we have so much information. Uh, and it's so readily available, we don't necessarily select the right content. Um, it's, it's not always obvious. It's confused by the noise of everyone saying this is right. Back then, it would be an album where you've got up to 12 songs telling you um, a particular story in different ways. And each song spoke to uh, a human condition. And you'd buy into that artist, whether it's Burning Spear telling you about the history of Africa or uh, Bob Marley being a philosopher. Um, There were, or Stevie Wonder even talking about history or Marvin Gaye telling you about the world. Wherever you looked, the lyrics were hard won. And that means someone suffered to, to deliver those lyrics, but they somehow created music and lyrics and an arrangement that made it palatable. I think, again, today we're moving slowly back into that, but we're also trapped in uh, what's easy, uh, Mm -hmm. what's palatable. Um, Easy means if I can write two words and repeat them every couple of seconds, that's enough. And uh, it will be a hook and people will sing those two words. Uh, which is true, but those two words, more often than not, don't amount to much. And so I think what's easy today in terms of music and what we listen to, what even downloading it's bloody easy. Back in the day, you had to go to a record shop. It was a mission to get the music you want, which meant somehow it was more powerful. So, yeah, it's it's... The same but different very different it's very different yeah the similarities and crossovers but even like thinking about it now i'm like there is i don't know how much energy i would have more time to go to a record shop and pick up my records to dj um especially you know if they're coming out every friday <laughs> well the thing is you would find the time if that if you have no option true True, there's, and there's less options, yeah. So the world's organised around the options you have to some extent. And today, everything is brought to you and made easy. Mm. That means, inevitably, quality suffers. Yes. Yeah, that's so true. I wanted to understand all the different roles that you've had in music and how did you get into those spaces, like from artist to producer to you said vocalist, consultant, manager, like how how did those interlink and how did you get f- from A to B basically? Well, to start off with, it, it's, <laughs> it's what you're told you can't do. So my parents said, I can't be a musician. <laughs> That's the first thing. So I'm a qualified plumber and a qualified electrician, <laughs> which I did whilst trying to get a 
record deal was, rehearsing and whatever and so on. But even when we started out as a band, we didn't go to music school. You, you picked up whatever instrument it was you thought you wanted to uh, be one with and you, you rehearsed. Um, I think I've got a practical mind. So I looked at, I first looked at the drums because I really like drumming. And I thought, that's just too much shit to carry around. It's just nonsense. So I'm not going to be the drummer. I'll play on his kit, but I'm not going to be the drummer. And then even back then, whether you're the guitarist or the bass player, you had to carry around your own speakers and amps and your guitar. Um, and they were massive. And I thought, nah, that's, 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 again, too much stuff. And then I looked at the vocalist and it was a mic. That was it. This is the easy bit. And I thought, you know what, vocalist, I'm going to look at vocalist. And you're still in the band. You're normally somewhere towards the front of the stage. And it means that you have a profile. And so for me, it was, it was the vocalist first. And it was just, being pragmatic about the, the challenge of being in a band. And then on the back of that, it was about, in terms of earning a living, you have to write your legacy or royalty or income is based on generating content that generates income beyond the performance. And so writing became really important. So I wrote, I became a lyricist. First, because that's words on paper. You don't need to know music. Um, and uh, I, I worked at doing that in my own space, in my own time, uh, quite separately to whatever band I was in, just working on being a lyricist, which meant eventually I became in-house writer for um, Island Records, Virgin Records, EMI. Um, but quite separate to that, along that journey, when you look at how we operate in the music industry, you realize that. For most creatives, music comes first. For most industry people, industry comes first. So in my brain, which is dyslexic, it, it already reversed it, um, music business to business music. So the business of music is what I focused on. And so that meant looking at um, even in our first band, I was the person running around initially getting gigs, finding out who the promoters are, where the clubs are, how much we get paid, trying to make sure we get paid. Then I worked in a press office to understand um, what actually is press, how does it work? The assumption is you just rock up, perform, and somehow you magically appear in, in the press. And the truth is, that's just not true. You know, there's a whole industry around and expertise around the marketing and promotion of content. So if you don't even understand that side, you don't understand the value of your content and how to position it and how to um, uh, market it. So again, by need, working in the press office highlighted the extent to which uh, black music was positioned by journalists and press agents and magazines in a way that we, we're always going to find more difficult to get a front page, uh, a double uh, page spread. And if you didn't get these 
positions in magazines, you wouldn't get TV. You wouldn't even get radio play. So it's by need. And then lastly, I think there's a whole loads of titles I've been through, but even working for television, I went in as music researcher uh, to London Weekend Television back in the day. And that was to look at how bands uh, selected for TV. And in working television, you then realize there's a whole handshake between uh, the journalist, the magazine, um, the radio, before you get to television. And if that community don't like you, if one person can screw it up for you, for all of those connections. So it then became about understanding how to network uh, across all of those various spaces. And once you have your own network across all of those mediums uh, in media, you can navigate and promote. So I became manager. And it meant I could promote the band in a way that um, a label could promote a band. And once you can do that, you can have a conversation with the label boss straight in. You know, so in 1980, I think I signed my third band to Richard Branson back then for 850000 in 1981. Right. Um, that was the biggest deal of the year back then. Ban only lasted 12 weeks, but that's another story. Because <laughs> they thought they were rich. Oh. Um, we never got all that money. But the point was, got the deal in 12 weeks from scratch. And that is uh, understanding how the business works. Music follows the business. Um, but the assumption as the musician is that the business follows the music. Mm. Do you think that's changing with... Um, the rise of independent artists and people sort of holding off from record deals? No, no, absolutely not. You only have to look at the back end of Spotify at the moment, which is hedge funders. Mm. It's people that have nothing really to do with music. It's about, can I make a profit on this commodity, this item? And we invest in making that profit. Music just happens to be the commodity. And that means that um, the sharp end of Spotify looks at playlists, but is buying up artists from the 70s, from the 80s, and paying hundreds of millions uh, for their copyright, their catalog. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? And it's because people from that era are still around and just want to press a button and listen to that music. It doesn't involve any investment necessarily in new artists because there's more profit to be made out of buying uh, catalog music or uh, old music uh, from four decades ago, three decades ago. Um, and you only have to look up in the music business or industry press and you'll see hundreds of millions is being paid for individual artists. Uh, how is that earned back? How does those companies get that money back? You know, and you'll find, again, at the other end, we all have Spotify. You know, so we're playing into that uh, industry model uh, by supporting it uh, because it's easy. Mm -hmm. So the dark art of the music industry is exploitation of artists. But artists are blessed and cursed. 
you know, they, they, on one hand, produce this beautiful stuff we call music, but they curse because they have no choice. And the industry knows this and will exploit this. And so, you know, um, it's, it's a long way of saying that, um, saying what, Michael? I don't know. Um, it's a hard life if you decide to be uh, a musician. It just is. And so that's why, for me, it's always been about the business of music as opposed to um, music first, business second. Mm -hmm. What's been your favourite role that you've had? I don't really separate in that way. You know, I think my role is to continue to survive doing what I want to do. That's my role. These are very various moments in time where um, I've adopted myself to continue uh, just operating in music. I mean, but if I had to choose, I'd perhaps say uh, education. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking to students that I met two decades ago um, who are now big people with children. And um, <laughs> we still have a really healthy conversation and kind of reminisce on our exchange of experiences because that's how I see it. And they're helping me now and I'm still able to help them in different ways. And it's that exchange that I think is kind of the most rewarding experience. So I'd say actually education. And then on reflection, you realize that when you're in a band, there is this handshake of information, you know, to and fro, what person is not doing it all, doesn't know it all. You're, you're exchanging what you know in relation to make a better tune. And it's that exchange that I think I cherish and I'm still doing. The uh, difference now is we've got maybe 25 studios here, a massive studio, a performance stage, um, and 200 odd students. And so I'm still doing music, um, but on a grander scale and the exchanges just as fruitful. Hmm. Why did you enter education? Again, it's the same. You know, there's a point in the 2000s um, where the DVD had crashed, most major studios were going under, labels were going under. For, the, for a brief moment, the CD had taken off. And uh, I looked at the industry and thought, do you know what? It's about time to reinvent myself again. And I've been doing it every three years to reinvent myself. That's the thing. And it's, it's quite an important, I think, um, uh, strategy in the business because three years is the evolution of a career, most careers, even if you're successful in the industry. Your audience has grown up and your best material is perhaps behind you. So every three years I reinvent myself. Um, and it was just that point where it was time to reinvent myself. And um, I was invited as consultant to the first course looking at commercial music in the UK. And the reason for that was everything I'd done before, you know, everything from working on pop bands to reggae bands to starting an orchestra back in the 90s. Um, uh, they said, can you come in and tell us what you do, how you do it? And that was the first step into education. And then 
you know, some of the fears about these spaces were abated. I, I looked at it and I thought, actually, it ain't that bad. I mean, it's bad, don't get me wrong, but it ain't that bad. <laughs> and there was um, room to, again, develop a whole new space and opportunities here. And so, yeah, I've been here and it's it has its own challenges, but I've developed uh, modules here that look at black music for the first time in a way that it hadn't been. I've developed a whole research center here that's um, the first national center for black music research in the UK. And we're doing projects that wouldn't have existed around the topic of black music um, if I had not come into education. So I've been championing this for the last uh, 15 years at least in terms of research. And it's beginning to pay dividends because it takes almost a generation of people and music before you realize um, the legacy of what you're doing. And so now we talk about black music and education in a way that we didn't, but if I didn't come into this space, um, perhaps someone else would have, but no one else was at the time. And so it's that three year thing. And over the time I've been here, I've reinvented myself at least four times. Uh, around different projects, and the latest of which um, is the first national exhibition looking at the long history of black music, black music in the UK. You spoke about reinventing yourself like three or four times um, whilst you were researching um, black British music. I wondered like, what some of the biggest challenges that you would have faced in that that period, like trying to. I guess building a module, building a research unit, like I can imagine it wouldn't have been easy. The biggest challenge is people, actually. Big it's people and mindsets. So just to put a spin on that, uh, people in that if you're as I was one of two black faces um in the university. In the whole university. When we entered, yeah. It's first um, an acceptance that you're supposed to be here. So um, you've got your own imposter syndrome, which is I'm not supposed to be here. Why am I here? Um, I'm totally out of place. This is kind of freaky. Um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I didn't go to university, but I'm here on the teaching side. Um, I'm going to get found out. And so it's like, that paranoia that is with you, that it's just a matter of time before I'm found out is a big deal. Um, but coming from a freelance background, which is the music industry, where um, <laughs> you're constantly being found out and being told uh, you're not good enough um, when you know your tune's kind of bangy. <laughs> um, it's not selling because they're not promoting you, but people are saying, yo, this is a bad tune. And you're not a radio because they're just playing racist back in the day. They're not playing it, but it's banging in the clubs. And if you don't chart, you can't get paid. You can't get that deal. Mm. Take that experience and then you transplant it into education. And you're already, you got your armor. You're quite robust. It's just another space where um, you're an outsider. And so that 
challenge remained and remains actually because as you move through different layers of management you find it's just a new challenge so for me it's people it's fighting the imposter syndrome because you're trying to champion something new which means actually you're educating yourself at the same time as educating those around you but you're not allowed to piss them off because they can stump your growth it can kill your project so that's uh, that's kind of a major ongoing challenge and then again because we've not been in this space and i say we in terms of black folk and even our subject area of black british music it means we're constantly having to prove stuff and challenge content information text books uh that have said stuff which is just not right but we have to prove it's not right because there's a body of information over decades and in some cases centuries that says this is how it is so we're coming in now, um and i say we in terms of there is at least two generations of individuals now that are accessing university and starting to research our contribution in terms of musicians to the to the uk and so this is not America, where you've got lots of black writers and musicians, uh, actors, and so forth. We are championing that, you know. So that is an ongoing challenge. And then it's even the point where, in certain spaces, you're assumed to be a student because there are no senior academics, and so that is just ongoing. I mean, my main challenge at the moment is boardrooms. I, in terms of reinventing myself, it's really important to be in boardrooms, get onto the board, and then hear the conversations uh, in that space where decisions are actually made, mm-hmm. and discovering that it's just regular people. You know, these people, this kind of seven foot tall, it's just regular people, um, and making your presence felt in those spaces again, learning how to do that. So those are the challenges. Uh, that are just ongoing and they're real. And the last component of that is money. Uh, you have to do this often in the absence of money uh, and then be successful in the absence of money before you can get the money. That's, I think, the biggest challenge because that's just raining. How do you do that? <laughs> um, you have to show the spaces that you're in that you can generate money for them. You know, there's a point in the arts where it's just about money. Uh, money creates the opportunity, but um, the organisations that even give you the money need to need to validate giving you the money. And we have a history in the black music community of not generating the types of money, incomes, returns that uh, they they're happy about. And so it's, it's approaching those conversations with solutions. And we don't have a choice, you know. And historically, we've always rose to that challenge. Um, the most recent is Grime, actually. If you look at what Grime artists did, when they were rejected from uh, deals, uh, promotional opportunities, tours, they circumvented the industry and went online they should be praised for actually being way ahead 
of the industry. But more often than not, um, <clears throat> they're positioned in another box of uh, generally uh, difficult to work with. Um, quality of productions are not great. The songs are not that commercial. Uh, and a lot of that's just complete bullshit. But the bottom line is the industry has been pulled up to speed by these musicians in recent times because they've had to learn how to navigate around the system that was locking them out. And so whether it's generating their sponsorship deals, coming up with their own companies, um, uh, marketing expertise, uh, they had to do it themselves. And so they say it's what you push against that makes you strong, but it also kills you. You know, and that's, that's our reality, I think, as uh, black folk in the music industry. We have to balance the passion, which is driving us forward over the edge of the cliff, and then learning to fly once we fall off that cliff pretty quickly. Otherwise, it's death. But yeah, I should paint a nicer picture, shouldn't I? Um, no, but it's <laughs> it all works out in the end. <laughs> no, it's the... I think it's quite realistic and something that you said that really st stuck out to me is that you had to prove that things weren't, that certain things weren't correct or certain um, things that you're reading about the, the, the research that you're conducting that you'd had to disprove that. Like, what are some of the biggest myths and misconceptions that you've come across in people's perceptions around black British music? I think perhaps value well, there's two things. One is the economic value, mm. and then the other is the cultural value. So if we start with the economic value, it, there's always this assumption that Black British music hasn't made any money. Mm. But if you were to go to the books of the major labels and you'd see how much in terms of uh, just copyright income it has generated for labels, you'd be surprised. Um, Labels such as Virgin, huge amount of money was generated in the 80s through reggae, Island Records, um, Greensleeves Records. These are multi, I was going to say multi-billion pound uh, economies generated by Black British music. And it's also understanding what Black British music is. Mm. Um, Black British music includes uh, two-tone which is bands like Madness, Specials, The Beat, Selector. Um, it includes um, uh, Black British R&B, hip hop, um, jungle, drum and bass, grime, two-step, you know, lovers rock. It's, it's generated a lot of money from that perspective, but in terms of culture, it's completely transformed British language, British dance, um, British cool rave comes out of black British music. And mm. even bands that you might not associate like Massive Attack or Prodigy um, are a component of the presence of black British music, you know. And even the production uh, of pop uh, is influenced by the production of black British music, you know. So there's a handshake here, which is cultural and creative and uh, economic that sometimes we don't put together. Uh, but the benefits of that has mainly gone into uh, a non-black community. 
right? And it's the business end that we should be looking at as to why and how that continues to happen. Uh, and that's a short narrative on that would be mainly because we spend a disproportionate amount of time on music uh, that perhaps should be spent on the business of music, as I said earlier. If you reverse those two relationships, um, you'd understand why we're not in the boardroom making the decision about who gets signed, who gets promoted, where the money gets spent. Um, but you'd also understand uh, how to develop your smaller label so that it has a bit more of a life. That makes a lot of sense. And I think coming off the back of that, as an educator and as someone who teaches, what would be the most important lesson on Black British music that you think people should be taught? Oh, God. That's a difficult one. Um, the most powerful thing about music is that it's a universal language and that if we master that language, we can connect to anyone, anywhere, at any time and have a conversation. That's the power. But the flip side of that, to some extent, is most of us spend so much time in the making of music that we arrive at a point where we're just like robots. We're making it, but we don't understand what we're making. And we arrive at a tune, a song, a hit, and we can't repeat it. And that's the case for most musicians. They arrive at their, their moment, but they can't repeat that moment, which means they're short-lived. And so understanding how to extend that moment, I think, is, is, is really important. We should invest energy in just sometimes it's shut up and listen and <laughs> learn from people that have gone before. Spend a little time being humble about what you don't know um, in this industry. And just go out and talk to people who've done it, you know, um, network to the elders and find out. I mean, a lot of them chat shit, but even so, uh, it's connecting to what has gone before in order to move into the future. Uh, we're all building this future, but, um, you know, a lot of uh, us have invested a lot of time in making it easier. And you should just tap into those individuals, seek them out and tap into them. Um, and the last thing I would say is don't be afraid of education. You know, it's, it's kind of key. Um, it is key to, if you recognize the past, you have a better idea of what's to come. And so in music, we go around in a big circle. And if you understand that circle and where you, you are in that evolution, uh, you can be really powerful. And that's, that's the point here. At reinventing yourself is not an option, actually. It is a must. You talk to, if you spoke to Stormzy now, he'd probably say, and you say, how many ideas you got for what you're going to do next? And he'd probably say, do you know what? I've run out of ideas, mate. I've done everything. And it's kind of worked, but I've run out of ideas. And it's, that's natural. Absolutely natural. And then you'll find musicians take a break in order to come back and they can't come back because they've chilled out. They're no longer at the co-face. Face. They're not pushing against that hard thing because they've got some money in the bank. And it's understanding how that cycle works, both mentally and how it works for your audience and then the industry. And it's a complex mix, which if you don't read, um, you don't have these conversations, which are 
somewhat intellectually challenging sometimes. If you don't focus on the business, you're doomed to stop. You know, and so I think for younger musicians and certainly those you know, coming into university, they're looking at everything from, uh, it might sound bizarre, but architecture to fashion, to photography, to film, to animation, um, to computer science, but they're musicians. Mm. And it just means they have a wider field uh, of content to feed into their creative output. So that's coming from a university perspective. Mm. That's a great piece of advice for anyone, I guess, in the creative industry to like feed off of other um, creative spaces and not just limit yourself to your certain field because it just, it kind of traps you. You're a creative, you know, tap into the full breadth of your creativity. I think a couple of months ago, I think it was Skepta who was at Sotheby's uh, <laughs> yeah. auctioning painters and going, yo, what do you mean I can't paint? <laughs> when white musicians paint, it's a big deal. And, I've been pushed into this bag where it's assumed all I can do is make music. Mm. I totally support that. You know, if you're creative, you're a creative, accept that and then expand on your creativity. If you make music, you can make other things. What are your hopes for the future? I hope to be here. That's what I hope for the future. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I've got shit to get done. So yeah. I, I need to be here. And it's, it's also, I think, you need to survive the challenges you set yourself. And so I've set myself a delivering a national exhibition for 2024. Um, we're working on it now. Uh, the timeline is the last 600 years of black music in Britain. So I don't make things easy. <laughs> um, I'm not making it up though. Yeah, no, no, it's just true. <laughs> that history exists, right? And so, it's now, as I said, we have to evidence that. And then I'm working inside another institution, which is the British Library. So all the things I said before, you have to go through that again. It's a new uh, institution, set of people and exchanges. And so it's a lot to get done. And then the icing on the cake is I know that our audience is going to come in and you better get it right, you know, because they will challenge you in what they think should be there. And it's as much educating the audience, our community, as it is educating the institution within which these type of large scale projects take place. And I would just say to anyone, if they want to get involved, just get in touch. There's a national exhibition. And so from, I don't know, Southampton, one end to Edinburgh, the other end of the country, we want people to say, we want to get involved. Did you know this story about where we're from um, and so forth? So yeah, that's my madness for the next three years. And how can people contact you? Well, everyone's got my mobile. I'm joking, <laughs> do not give out my mobile. <laughs> um, I'm easy to find because of that crazy spelling. Um, I'm at the University of Westminster. Uh, so just put in Michael Riley, University of Westminster. And you'll find me really easy. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us and for having your perspective on the RA Exchange. It's been really amazing to hear your insights and also follow your journey um, from all your various roles in music and in education. Thank you, Vanessa. And, and keep following and get involved.
Black Minds Matter are looking for 21,000 long-term donors who are able to donate £5 per month and with your support they can take real next steps into achieving their goal of creating a lasting impact on black mental health. There are links in the description of this podcast if you are able to help. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.